0: All right, everyone, let's call a timeout. You're listening to The Time Out, a podcast where we talk with leading surgeons about their journeys in their careers and some of the key decisions and lessons that they've learned along the way. My name is Jason, and today we'll be speaking with Professor Sebastian King, who is a pediatric colorectal surgeon at the Children's Hospital. Prof, it's nice to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for the invitation, Jason.
0: So for those of our listeners who don't know much about you, would you like to introduce yourself to them?
1: So I'm a paediatric surgeon at the Children's in Melbourne, though originally from Sydney, and I spend the vast majority of my time looking after children with colorectal conditions. certainly wasn't something that I anticipated at any stage through my medical school training or even my early years as as an intern and a resident, um, but it's something that I've ended up doing, and now I spend probably 90% of my elective time looking after children with complex colorectal conditions, so children born with congenital conditions or children that develop complex colorectal conditions later in life. That's my elective work, but I still uh, function as a general paediatric surgeon. So for that, part of the on-call service. And so look after patients that come through as part of our trauma service or our thoracic patients or our oncology patients um, or even uh, the bread and butter appendicitis and sore balls and things like that.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. We always like to ask our guests about what they've been up to today. So, can you maybe take us a little bit through um, your day to day? You know, what have you been up to since getting up this morning?
1: Yeah. So obviously, it's a it's a slightly unusual time at the moment with COVID, and my wife and I. My wife's an immunologist at Royal Melbourne and an academic researcher at Wehi. And so we're doing a bit of a tag team at the moment. So we've got a 14-year-old son, a 12-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son. So this morning was actually spent trying to get them to do their schoolwork. Um, I can't say I was singularly successful with my 12-year-old daughter. So they've been home for about five weeks. They're doing a pretty good job, really. They get on very well. It's just that they drive their parents slightly mad.
0: I was going to ask, you know, are, are you managing to keep sane with them at home?
1: I go for long walks.
0: (laughs) In terms of what you're listening to or reading at the moment, can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Oh, yeah, well, I, I love I love reading. In fact, I've just finished reading the Michelle Obama uh, autobiography, Becoming, which was fantastic. Certainly recommend that. And uh, uh, reading a wonderful novel at the moment called Less, uh, which won the Pulitzer Prize uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but I, I listen to podcasts uh, pretty much all the time. This morning's podcast sounded like a complete geek, uh, but was listening to In Our Time with Melvin Bragg talking about Animal Farm um, and the other, my most recent sort of guilty podcast pleasure has been this fantastic podcast by a guy called Kirk Hamilton called Strong Songs, um, which essentially dissects over about 45 minutes one pop song at a time and, and uh, takes it apart and puts it back together again so you can understand why that song's so successful.
0: That's interesting because uh, another little birdie on the street has told me that you're an Elton John fan. <laughs> tragic.
1: I think Elton John tragic is the, is the correct term.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about one thing that you can't live without?
1: Music. Yeah, music. Constantly listen to music, enjoy that with the kids. I think I surprised them on the weekend by putting on some Dua Lipa. They weren't expecting that. A bit more used to me listening to Frank Sinatra or jazz. But music is essentially core to what I do. I can't work without it. I exercise with it and I also enjoy Playing it. So I play cello not as much as I would like to anymore. Um, And I love singing. So do as much of that as possible as well.
0: Do you have any other sort of creative outlets apart from music?
1: Not really. I've never been one who sort of spends inordinate amounts of time in the garden or, you know, in the workshed. No, it's not, that hasn't been my sort of space. Um, So a bit of sport and, but mostly music and spending time with the kids.
0: Uh, If there was one profession, outside of surgery that you could try, what would that be?
1: I would want to be Justin Timberlake.
0: <laughs> and, and why is that?
1: Uh, I think anybody who can get up and perform in front of 50,000 people, sing, dance, you know, and carry that off, that's quite remarkable.
0: Well, speaking of all those special names, um, you know, we've also heard from our people on the inside that you were at the Oscars this year. How did you manage to sort that out?
1: <laughs> well, I have a, a very well-connected sister. So through a number of sort of links, um, we ended up at the very last moment getting tickets, uh, two tickets to the Oscars. And so both my sister and I are complete Oscars tragics and have been for many, many years. And we had talked about going and recognising that you you can't buy tickets. They're almost impossible to get hold of. But thankfully, she had a great friend and colleague who lives and works in Los Angeles who was able to get the tickets for us. First night uh, was lots of fun hanging out with uh, a bunch of Australians that are involved in the film industry including uh, one of the producers from Joker and then on the Saturday uh, apart from going and sorting out my sister's outfits and all the rest of it we went to the dress rehearsal of the governor's ball which was quite an unusual event that's mostly for families and friends associated with the with the caterers and wolfgang uh, puck and all the rest of it, um, but that was great because it meant that we knew exactly where we wanted to park ourselves the next night, and then, on the Sunday in the limo up Hollywood Boulevard, through all the security, down the red carpet, admittedly, there are two red carpets you don 't realize that when you 're watching the TV they 're right next to each other, but there 's very clearly a first class and an economy carpet, and we were on the economy carpet, you know walking there down next to Billy Eilish and Todd Phillips and Tom Hanks and the like. And then we watched the show, which was amazing. And uh, as you mentioned before, I am an Eldon John tragic and Eldon John performed and won another Oscar. So that was that was pretty incredible. Yeah, there were a couple of quite surreal moments at the actual event. You know, one was a, a montage that they'd put together of songs associated with films, including the one that Eminem won, uh Eight Mile, and uh, and then all of a sudden the stage opened and out came Eminem to perform. And I looked down to see Tom Hanks doing some really bad daggy dad dancing. And then seeing Elton John perform, which was pretty incredible, and seeing him win and give a great speech, and and then of course you know seeing Parasite win, which was incredible. Yeah, you know, to be there for the first time that a foreign film has won Best Film, um, and then to you know, we got to meet the producers and some of the actors afterwards at the Governor's Ball. That was lots of fun. And then back to Melbourne, and my first clinic back was a constipation clinic. So it sort of came back to earth with a thud. <laughs>
0: It sounds like you're someone who's quite interested and quite involved in films, I'd assume. Is that something that developed more recently, or is that something that you've always been interested in? No, no,
1: I've been addicted to films from a very early age. Um, but no, certainly films is something that I love to do, to watch, to dissect. Um, and certainly now that the kids are getting older, you know, reintroducing or introducing them to all these classics of the 80s and the 90s. Um, and now that my eldest is getting uh, that much bigger, being able to start to watch films with him that I watched with my dad many, many years ago.
0: So maybe on that topic of, um, of growing up, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? So from what we have found, you, you grew up in New South Wales, is that right? Yes,
1: yeah, so I grew up in Sydney. My father's an adult colorectal surgeon and my mother was a nurse and they had uh, trained in Sydney and then actually lived in Singapore and the UK. My parents came back to Australia when my mum was in the third trimester with me. So born back in um, Sydney at at the hospital that my siblings had been born at, that my dad worked at, that my mum worked at, and that I eventually ended up going to medical school at and training. So uh, at St George in Sydney. So yes, I grew up in Sydney um, and Southside and uh, went through school at Sydney Grammar. Finished there and in those days you could get directly into medicine. Um, that was the sort of usual intake. And so I actually took a gap year, went overseas for a year, needed to, uh, to get away and take a bit of the pressure off after the year 12 and then came back and went into medical school at uh, UNSW and then finished there in 2000.
0: So in terms of Sebastian King, the, the boy, what were you like as a child?
1: Constantly in trouble, which won't surprise some people who know me.
0: Threw myself into lots of things, so lots of music,
1: um, lots of sport, but particularly music. So that was both at the school where there was fantastic music at Sydney Grammar, but also Sydney Youth Orchestra and the national music camps and tours with that. Sydney Grammar was pretty fierce in terms of the academic side of things. They pushed you pretty damn hard to to work and succeed. And I had uh, an older brother and a sister and a younger brother uh, who were all sort of in that same milieu. Yeah, and then and then, as I said, it was great to get away for a year, and you know, went and worked at a, a boarding school just outside Oxford, and had a great gap year, um, teaching and tutoring and doing lots of sport and lots of music and drama.
0: Were you more sciencey, matsy inclined, or were you more sort of on the humanities side?
1: No, no, very much the maths and science, and I think that the maths and music going strongly together. So did all of the the various grades through school and through AMEB to, to do the music for the HSC as well, and then continued that both overseas and then back in Australia. So took my cello with me to uh, my gap year and taught over there and performed and got to do a whole lot of fun things like you know performing at the Edinburgh Festival and you know, getting really stuck into to that year um, with the cello and then bringing it back. Here. And, and taking it everywhere.
0: You know, when we speak to all of our guests about a certain moment when they realise that, okay, medicine is something that I wanted to do. For some people, it's watching a teacher tend to one of their classmates' injuries. Others, it might be like an injury that they've experienced themselves and interacting with a surgeon that way. Did you have a moment like that? Maybe may be in high school or in the early years of medical school?
1: Because I grew up with both my mum and my dad being in the medical field. It was just part of life.
0: But I certainly
1: thought from from about 13, 14, that medicine was something that I was interested in doing. I certainly didn't think that I wanted to do what my dad did in terms of adult colorectal. Um, So it is unusual I've ended up doing peds colorectal, though they're very different specialties. But the thing that really sparked the enthusiasm for me, particularly towards pediatric surgery, was I, I was very privileged to be able to spend a week As a work experience student when I was 16 at the hospital where my mum and dad both worked. And the senior surgical registrar who had worked with both of them was uh, given the task of looking after me for the week. He uh, made sure that I got in to see all manner of different theatres. So I did, you know, got in there, saw liver resections through to orthopedics, through to breast and endocrine some colorectal with my dad and then but the Thursday morning I can still remember it as clearly as anything I spent the morning doing paediatric surgery and so St George is a large adult teaching hospital but it has a, a paediatric surgical uh, consultant presence where they come in once a week to do minor cases and so I got to spend the morning with a remarkable surgeon by the name of Ian Kern who was the senior surgeon at Sydney Children's and what really blew me away with him was one that he was lovely to me uh, which was great but two how lovely he was with the the staff how nice he was to the families how much he cared for the patients and the children that he was looking after and how even though he was in his late 50s early 60s at that stage he was still so enthusiastic about what he did he loved his work he loved the embryology associated with the conditions that we were looking after he saw a purpose in what he was doing Um, he was happy to teach and i thought wow if i can model that then that's going to be a fantastic way to to have a a career because i had seen through contact with my parents many surgeons in there at similar ages who were nowhere near as enthused anymore with their work for various reasons and uh, i think that ian kern's enthusiasm was was infectious I decided then, age 16, that paediatric surgery was what I wanted to do. And there have been very few moments uh, over the coming years where I've vacillated from that.
0: So it seems like from quite an early age compared to the rest of us maybe, you had this drive to become a paediatric surgeon. How did you approach medical school with that in mind
1: Yeah, so I knew that our exposure to PEDS was relatively limited. So I obviously have to have the base medical training and you have to spend most of your time doing the adult medicine, which I sort of tolerated but recognized that it wasn't what I was really interested in and, and in a way it was a relief that I didn't find something else that along the way that I thought wow I really wanted to do this but I also thought to myself well if I want to do peds I, I want to make sure that I I see the things that are associated with it so I really threw myself into obs and and, and really enjoyed obs and gyne and uh, was, had thought about you know perhaps may, maybe I could change and think about doing that and luckily had a very senior obstetrician who'd worked with my dad for many years and, I, and he said oh you, you seem to be really enjoying this and I said yes I am I was you know I've always thought that I was going to do peed surgery and he said well which bit of this do you really like and I said oh it's just so lovely when the new babies come out and he said yeah well you're interested in the babies you're not interested in the obs and gyne bit and, and so that was that was really good advice. And I also went and had a look at radiology, not because I was interested in doing radiology, but I thought, well, I want to understand more about it. So I actually asked um, to swap out of a term in my final year of medical school to not do another medical term, but to do a radiology rotation, which was great. And I also, when I did my elective, I went and spent time in Cape Town and uh, to do adult trauma, but then got to see some peds there as well. And that just reaffirmed my thinking around it. And then when I came out of medical school I knew that I needed to do my intern and residency but I'd always thought that not necessarily that I would go into research but that I would perhaps spend a year doing some anatomy demonstrating or something that was that would help with the surgical exams and it was just serendipitous that the year that I went to the, back to the University of New South Wales to say, you know, can I come along and be an anatomy demonstrator for a year was the first year they decided they weren't gonna run that program anymore. So I was a bit sort of stuck um, thinking, well, I I really wanted to do that. I really wanted to use that as a way of studying for the primaries, as they were called at that stage. And that rug was pulled out from underneath me. So I got very lucky in that I went and spoke with a pediatric surgeon in Sydney by the name of Anthony Dilley, who all the pediatric surgeons around the country know and the trainees particularly know, because he was the the director of our board of training for many years. But he had been my dad's registrar and and had done research with my mum. And I said, look, you know, what? Do you think I should do? I'm interested in pediatric surgery, but don't want to go through necessarily the normal path. What would you recommend? And he said, well, have you thought about research? And I said, yes, I have, but I don't know if I've got any particular aptitude for it. And he said, well, look, if you want to do research, the places to do it for pediatric surgery at that time, it's really Melbourne or Christchurch. So I wrote a letter to Professor John Hudson, who many people know as the Professor of Paediatric Surgery here. I also wrote a letter to Spencer Beasley, the professor in Christchurch who'd worked in, in Melbourne for many years, but had relatively recently moved to Christchurch. And thankfully, they both offered me a job. It's just that John offered me the job first. Um, and so I took a bit of a leap of faith and stopped my clinical training for three years to come and do a PhD in paediatric surgery, which was really putting all of your eggs in one basket. But I thought, let's see how this goes. And, and as it turned out, I had an absolutely fabulous three years doing the, the PhD with John, who's a remarkable person as well as a remarkable scientist and surgeon and mentor and it just confirmed what i wanted to do because i got to do a clinical uh, project which meant i got to spend time in the in the children's hospital and got to spend time on the wards and get to know the surgeons i wasn't just stuck in the lab I mean, i'd done that deliberately i did some lab-based work but most of it was clinically based deliberately and so then came out of that three years and back into surgical training, absolutely energised about applying to do paediatric surgery and recognising that getting onto paediatric surgery is very challenging, that it's a small specialty, the numbers across the country and well, across both countries because it's an Australasian-based program. But I thought that I'd put myself in a pretty good position uh, over those three years of people getting to know me and, and the work that I'd done with John's supervision to be able to put myself in the best position to get get selected
0: like you said at the time you had that question of do I have the the aptitude to do research I think that's something that a lot of medical students also do grapple with you know maybe it's because of the way that we get exposed to research in our curriculum or something like that but I'm just wondering for, for those who might be questioning or do I is, is research something that I'm actually interested in like how do I know what, what advice would you give to them to sort of try, help answer that question
1: Yeah. Well, that's a great question. I think that, um, and I say this to my students all the time, you guys are so far ahead of where I was when I started my PhD. When I I finished my medical school, I had done one PowerPoint presentation, barely knew how to use a Word document. So when I started uh, my PhD, that was all a very steep learning curve uh, learning even how to save documents and I just we just hadn't been particularly computer minded and so that takes a lot that, that was quite a lot of the stress of the first 3 to 6 months of the phd was right how do i actually what are the logistics of doing this so there's an element of that, that that's taken away by the fact that you are all so much more computer savvy than than uh, than i was and most of us were at that time you also have a great opportunity through the University of Melbourne. I think the MDRP project, the program is fantastic from that point of view because it really does give everybody a taste and some people will love it and some people won't and that's fine. But but it's, it's enough of a time to really sink yourself into one good project potentially. But at the same time, if it's not for you, then it's not for you and that and that's that's great because it's better that you found that out. I don't know what would have happened if I'd got a year into it and thinking, Oh my goodness, this is the last thing I want to be doing. But again, I was incredibly fortunate in that I got good advice, selfless advice from Anthony Dilly, and then I lucked into one of the best supervisors probably on the planet. And so that that made a huge difference. I certainly didn't think that I had any aptitude. In fact, when I was finishing my resident year, one of my senior residents who's a great mate from medical school, a guy by the name of Stuart Condon, who uh, is head of MSF Australia, who's had a very sort of non-traditional pathway through his medical career. He said to me, oh, Baz, what are you up to next year? Thinking that I was going to go up to Sydney and take some senior resident job. And I said, I'm moving to Melbourne to do a PhD. And he just laughed. He said, why would you do that? you you, you won't be able to do that. And I sort of laughed with him. I'm like, yeah, it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? But uh, as it turned out, it worked out reasonably well. But you just never know. That's why I say to the students when they come and see me that People tend to get attracted to the bells and whistles and, and you know, the, the person who looks potentially great on paper and and is out presenting all the time, but they might not necessarily be the right person to be working with. You want to you pick uh, the, the project almost comes last. You really need to pick the supervisor who is going to support you and hopefully inspire you to do good work and uh, certainly know that at the moment with the COVID. I like the personal interactions that I have with my students on a sort of essentially almost daily basis. And um, and so it's a bit unusual to have to be doing that remotely. But at the same time, you can continue to supervise and support people even through these sort of unusual times. But I think if the, there are now so many more options in terms of being able to get into research, you, know, you could, in terms of the masters courses that are available. So, one of my current PhD students is doing a fabulous job. She did her masters of surgical sciences through University of Edinburgh. I helped supervise her through that, and that was mostly coursework with a bit of with a bit of um, original research. And so, that was a great way for her to be able to see, yes, this is something that I'm actually really interested in doing, and persevering and going on and doing a PhD. One of my other current PhD students who's just started this year was one of my MDRP students you know, two, three years ago and uh, has a real aptitude as well. So you just never know.
0: You know growing up in a, in a medical family, particularly with a dad who's a colorectal surgeon at the time, I'm wondering, as we sort of start moving into the early stages of your career, seeing your dad, and I'm assuming he would have been quite a busy man, what lessons or what things did you kind of take away from growing up in that environment?
1: Yeah, so um, dad had also been very interested in academic colorectal work. So had worked with a guy called Brian Brook in London in the early 70s who was the professor of at St George's uh, in London. To this day, people use the Brook ileostomy. So when we form an ileostomy, that's the Brook ileostomy. So Prof was a remarkable polymath um, who'd been a rower and a poet and a painter. And so my dad worked with him as a Commonwealth scholar for a year Prof had done a huge amount of work on IBD, so it was a friend and colleague of Burrell Crone. So when my dad first came back, essentially fully intending to do and have an academic role, but got very busy clinically for a number of reasons. One, um, just because of the times, and two, because he had a number of senior colleagues who were unwell, that all of a sudden he assumed their practices. And so therefore, he didn't get as involved in the academic side as he would have liked to, I think, and all of a sudden was very busy clinically. He got very involved with administration, so ended up being the chief of surgery at St George and many, many other roles and still is active from a political point of view. But I think that I saw that the academic side and that mixture of the clinical and the academic is what keeps academic surgeons interested and engaged and involved. And if you're feeling like you are making a difference, not just to the patient in front of you, but to the, the many patients to come, uh, both locally, nationally, internationally, then that's something that makes you feel very good about the work that you're doing. And so I think that I, that's one of the lessons that I saw, not only from my dad, but then my mum, who moved out of clinical nursing and did a Master's of Public Health and for many years ran the surgical research for the Professor of Surgery at St. George, that that can have a profound impact on patients around the world. And I think that uh, over the next 10 to 20 years, that that's how I will feel about the work that I'm doing, surrounding yourself, not only with bright young students with novel ideas, but also seeing that the ideas that you've worked hard to put into practice, you know, what impact that can have um, in not only you know, your clinical practice, but practice elsewhere.
0: On that point that ideas are a lot more powerful they sort of extend beyond the ability of say one one surgeon or one clinician to impact however many patients they serve their, their ideas and the research has much greater impact than that in terms of those ideas as well you also talked about this situation at the end of your residency year when one of your friends at the time said you know why, why would you go and do research i'm wondering in in those moments how do you make those decisions to continue research or not did you feel like it was a really big gamble that you were taking essentially?
1: Well, there are a number of factors that play there. A fiance at the time, now wife, we'd got engaged with a plan that essentially we were going to stay in Sydney. And then all of a sudden I was saying, well, why don't we move to Melbourne? And so we moved to Melbourne two weeks after we got married. Charlotte is an intern up in Sydney. We'd started in medical school together, but she'd done a combined medicine and arts degree. So she'd done a seven year degree. And so it ended up coming out of medicine the year behind me. She'd done her intern year and luckily was able to secure a resident position at Royal Melbourne. So that all worked out uh, for the best. But it was a bit of a leap, certainly a leap financially. The first year that I came down here, I was earning $20,000. So that was a drop from what I'd been earning as, a, as a, a resident. So thankfully, Charlotte was able to support me through those three years. And eventually, I ended up with a college scholarship and then an HMRC scholarship. So there was more money coming through. But for that first year, I was very grateful to the fact that John had been able to find some money for me. Certainly the first three, six months of the PhD was a bit of a struggle in that even though John is an incredibly supportive mentor and supervisor, he wasn't there to hold your hand and you're working through and reading a whole bunch of literature that you've never really had to have your head around before. And again, this is where I think you guys coming through the program that you've come through in a far better position if you were to go on and do further research, you've actually got a concept of what a literature review looks like. You've done one. But, you know, I'd never done that. First three to six months of the PhD was a little bit of a challenge from the perspective of you go from being an intern and a resident who prided himself on getting on with people, getting on with the job, doing it as effectively and efficiently as possible, particularly when I was doing the surgical rotations, getting that ward work done as quickly as possible to get into theatre. Knowing that most residents will do 70 to 100 jobs a day without even thinking about it to all of a sudden – turning up to work and being completely and utterly self-directed. And so that was a, that was a bit of a challenge. But again, luckily, it's, it speaks volumes to John's mentorship and how he runs his, has run his research group for the last almost 40 years. Gave me small projects to start with that built up and eventually, you know, within that three to six months, I was coming to him with ideas for projects and off we went. I got very lucky in that I came into a group that also had a number of other students um, and one of my dearest friends to this day, Jonathan Sutcliffe, who's a PEDS colorectal surgeon in Leeds in the UK. And Jonathan Sutcliffe and I were des partners and we had an absolute hoot. That made a huge difference, and again, it's one of the things that I say to the mdRP students when they come and see me is that to ask around to the students you know over the last couple of years about what which research groups people have enjoyed being in because they need you need to be around with other people who are in that group and so that you can band together um, and be in it together and so that when things are tricky as they are say for example at the moment that you've got a cohort of of colleagues that are that you can rely upon and lean on and have a laugh at and and you know laugh at the boss's idiosyncrasies which is an important thing to be able to do
0: sort of quite interested in in that sort of first 3 to 6 months particularly when you're thinking oh maybe this might not be the right thing for me and obviously you you didn't you sort of didn't give up on it then you continued with it i'm wondering in your career has there ever been a point where you thought, you know, should I redirect my energies elsewhere from something, and if so, how did you make that decision?
1: Yeah, um, it's a good question. I don't like to give up on stuff, and I and I was lucky in that I enjoyed. 95% of my research time in those three years, there were a couple of projects. There was one project in particular that just really, really didn't float my boat. And so in the end, I let that fall away because I had more than enough for my thesis and that was fine. But I think in that first three to six months, trying to have a little bit of structure around what I was doing helped. And it just took me a little while to get that sorted in my head about how how that what that was going to look like. And what was I trying to achieve and how I how that worked with having other people in the unit as well. And so that just took a little while to get there. Certainly the closest that I've come in terms of, you know, do I need to redirect from a career perspective, came a little later after the PhD. Charlotte and I went to New Zealand for a couple of years, went to Christchurch for clinical work, for training, had, a, had an amazing two years there, and were due to come back and thought that we were going to be going to one state. And then at the last moment, got, I got sent to a different state because of the training board and the politics of the time of the training board. And that was probably the closest that I got to thinking, you know, do I really want to be doing this? I'm, I'm a bit over being pushed around. You know, I'm in my, at that stage, early 30s, reasonably grown up, got two children of my own. Couple of mortgages, you know. I've I've got an idea of how to carry myself, and here I am being told you're not going to one place, you're going to another, and that and that didn't impact that that impacted on me to a degree, but it also that it was you know, it started to impact on Charlotte in a particular way, in that she had arranged her job um, back in Sydney uh, based on. Where she thought I was going to be, and she'd moved around for me on multiple occasions. And so, and people had been accommodating to her. She got a prime job back in Sydney, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm being told that I won't be going there. But out of that comes opportunity, you know, ended up being sent back to Melbourne. I'm now incredibly grateful for that decision, which in 2010, I wasn't so grateful for. But I hadn't imagined how. Fortune I was then going to be in terms of the training opportunities I had here, the ability to then come back and work with John, John Hudson again, as well as all of the consultants that I trained under here, and realising that, yes, this is the surgical research space is the one that I want to work in, that all of a sudden... This is actually the place to be with regards to the Children's Hospital, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, the University of Melbourne and the Department of Peds, all incredibly strong uh, working together, as well as the RCH Foundation, which funds so much of our work. That collection, those sort of four pillars of the work that we do here at the Children's, doesn't exist in other places around the country.
0: You mentioned something interesting as well. I think as junior doctors, nowadays, people feel like being part of the system means that you kind of fall victim to the system in a way, you know, as you said, you didn't enjoy sort of being moved around. In terms of navigating some of maybe those politics and that sort of thing, from your experience, you know, was there anything else you did that you think helped you through managing that?
1: Well, I think that you realize, at least in the surgical space, that the, there's an enormous amount of power in the training boards and the training boards for the vast majority of the time across the different specialties run by very well-meaning surgeons who are dedicating and donating their time to the college. So none of these positions are paid takes an inordinate amount of time to look after the training responsibilities. And so it's tricky as you come through your training because you're starting to get more and more autonomy. You're essentially being geared up and trained to be an autonomous surgeon who is capable of managing his or her own specialty and practice and managing teams, managing conflict. But at the same time, then having to have your life decided to some degree by a collection of people sitting on a board that you might not even necessarily know. It becomes particularly tricky if you've then got partner who is working and trying to juggle that work, and now that work might be medical, it might be teaching, it might be anything, and obviously there are some professions and jobs that are easier to move around than others. You know, my wife at least understood what it was like to go through exams. You know, she'd sat her physician's exams and then come back more and sat her pathology fellowship as well. Um, so she understood what it was like, the stresses of sitting those exams. But at the same time, if she hadn't been moved around by me, she probably would have stayed in the one state and maybe even stayed in a couple of hospitals. Um, so those sort of pressures that come to bear can be can be challenging in terms of um, the reflections from that again I'm a very positive person the majority of the time and you just never quite know who you're going to come across because of those interactions and if I hadn't been sent down here I wouldn't have ended up training with one of my best friends now who she and I sat our exams together and pulled ourselves through the exam together which was you know a, a very formative experience um, so you just never know what's what you're going to what's around the corner from that point of view
0: yeah, I think hindsight is always twenty twenty in those in those situations, isn't it? So you finished your PhD in two thousand and eight. You started on the training program after that.
1: Yeah, I finished the research time uh, end of two thousand and five six. Finally, got around to graduating in oh eight. But I applied and got onto the paediatric surgical training program in two thousand and six, which was great. Got on the first year that I applied, thank goodness. And then in those days, you were sent away for a couple of years to do general adult. Um, so, I had some fantastic rotations in vascular and uh, head and neck and colorectal and upper GI, but trained in Wollongong, trained in Sydney, trained in Tweed Heads. And then I started my paed surgical training in Christchurch. So, I had two years in Christchurch before coming back to Melbourne and then worked briefly as a locum consultant before I then went and did my fellowship at Sick Kids in Toronto. And again, that position, you know, Sick Kids is one of the four or five sort of best known children's hospitals in the world. It's got a, a fantastic reputation, particularly in general surgery. It had been many years, almost thirty years, since an Australian had been to Sick Kids from our service, from from paediatric surgery point of view. And that was John Hudson. John, you know, I said to John. Oh, about five years before I went to Toronto, as you know, I'm a bit of a planner. I wanted to go to I wanted to go to Canada, and so he, through his amazing connections, reached out to the chief at the time, a guy called Jack Langer, he said you know that he had somebody that he thought was worth taking with the combination of them plus my training here under John Hudson and others. That's really where my um, interest in the in the colorectal space was uh, formed.
0: Yeah, I think what's quite interesting as well is that completing your your training and then doing a fellowship, that's all quite recent for you compared to, I guess, some of the other guests that we've spoken to.
1: That's slightly more grey hairs than me. Well,
0: They've been consultants for a long time and I think that the training environment that they went through is a little bit different to the one that you've gone through. So, on that point, I guess maybe more of a pragmatic question, you've mentioned that you have a tendency maybe to plan things and to think ahead. Um, when you're facing a, a task like studying for the college exams, or even you know as a medical student thinking about your own studies, what's your sort of mindset, or how do you approach that hurdle? I
1: can't say I was the greatest student at university. There was too much other stuff going on, and it's interesting because you know I knew quite a few you know very high achieving medical students who um, perhaps haven't. Kicked on into their clinical career as much as you would have anticipated for a number of reasons. One, because they were, you know, incredibly bright, but not necessarily able to interact on a more human level. And some who loved the control and the of being able to collect all that information, but the sort of slightly haphazard approach of clinical medicine just didn't work for them. If I think about how I. I sat my fellowship exam. I had a very singular focus, and that was I did not want to sit it twice. Um, and so that what that meant for me was a long lead in of preparation, but I thought I'm surrounded by incredibly committed talented surgeons who have all Saps exam. Everybody's gone through this experience, essentially, and who all know what it means to pass this and what it means for not only you professionally but for your family and for the friends that have sort of been supporting you through that process. And so, therefore, that was a real driver for me. On top of that, we by the, the year 2012 that I SAT my exam is a complete blur, really, because we had, by that stage, we had a six-year-old, four-year-old, and a newborn. And both my wife and I sat out, you know, Charlotte was sitting her second fellowship. She was sitting her uh, pathology fellowship that year. So she and I sat our fellowship exam four days apart. And it was the support of the, uh, it was the work that I'd done the year before uh, in terms of writing my notes and getting the, getting my head around the syllabus and preparing myself. But you can learn the syllabus without necessarily being ready to sit the exam because you haven't put it into practice. You haven't thought about it. You can regurgitate details, but you can't necessarily think about it as a consultant. And that's what they want. They want a junior consultant to be be sitting that exam. But then surrounding myself with the expertise of of the surgeons that I now work with here meant that I had such fantastic sounding boards that I could take that knowledge and say, well, this is what I've learned. And they could say, yeah, that's what it says in the books, but this is what it really is like in real life. For those of you who are sitting there thinking, well, maybe I've taken it a little lackadaisically through medical school, there is hope for you. And you get to the end of your intern year and you've forgotten 90% of what you learn at medical school, but you've learned a huge amount of other things that are practical and the skills that you actually need as a junior doctor. And so that's why I wouldn't wouldn't be too worried if you you haven't necessarily knocked it out of the park all the way through medical school.
0: Yeah, I think because a lot of medical students are quite compulsive planners, I mean, I guess one of the attributes that gets people into medical school in the first place is that they're able to have a long-term goal and break that down into steps and then they execute those steps. I'm, I'm wondering a little bit about this idea of what's in the books is different to what you learn in, in real life. And as a medical student, how did you or how would you recommend for us to maximize those opportunities to learn stuff, quote unquote, as they really are and not just by reading a book?
1: There are some some of you who will have just an innate clinical acumen who will see something once or twice or have read about it once or twice and just be able to see that patient and say, yes, this is what this patient's got, or this is a, the ability to spot a sick patient versus a, you know a not so unwell patient. But for you in terms of as an intern and a resident and coming into that, the most important thing is to take that book knowledge that you've got regardless of the level that it is hopefully it's sufficient that you've you know got to the end of your medical school and then really throw yourself into the clinical side and and just have an open mind and have open eyes and ears and the vast majority that you will learn from a ward perspective will be from the senior nurses it's not going to be from the resident who's running around desperately hoping that she or he doesn't upset the registrar who's desperately running around hoping that she or he won't upset the fellow and on it goes It'll be the nurses who have seen it and done it and over and over and over again and have got the nuances and and because they're the ones that spot the sick patients. If you think about it as an intern and resident, the phone call doesn't come to you from another intern or resident to say the patient's sick, it comes from the nurse. Then having the sort of strength of ego to be able to say, well, I got that wrong, not having the rigidity of ego but having the strength of ego to be able to say, okay, I got that wrong but how can I learn from that interaction and going. And so I'd go to the nurses and say, you know, what did I miss? being able to recognise that you don't know all of those answers. And that's the same as being a a consultant surgeon. I've had a patient in the last two days where we did a a beautiful operation on Thursday and that child needed to go back to theatre on Saturday and a colleague needed to take them back because they were unwell, completely unexpectedly. And that really weighs on you. You have to be mindful of surgeons where that doesn't have an impact on them because they're a worry. So I don't know if that's answered your question, but in, in terms of just having that uh, open mind and recognition that you won't know everything but also knowing who to ask and recognising when you've got it wrong. It's really important to to recognise that, to, to acknowledge it and to try to learn from that.
0: Yeah, I think the key message that at least I'm sort of hearing from you is sort of having the humility to acknowledge that you don't know everything and also the willingness to learn from that as well. Um, maybe on that theme, in your career, have there ever been times or moments where things haven't gone right and how did you how did you manage that situation
1: yeah absolutely if you interview anybody who says that hasn't happened uh, they're not telling you the truth because complications happen all the time and the more the more operations you do and the more complex operations you do the more likely they are to -hmm. happen and the tricky thing about complications is that complications might only be five to ten percent of your patients, but they take up ninety, ninety-five percent of your time. And they take up not only your time in terms of uh, the time on the ward and dealing with the, with that complication, but they also take up your mental space and uh, how you process that. There are different aspects here. There's the you know if we take the case of the child that I was talking about just before, I can't think of anything that we did during that operation that was wrong that we would do differently. Um so that's they're really difficult complications to to get your head around because you're sitting there thinking well you know we came out of that operation thinking you know I said to the registrar afterwards it's really nicely done well done. It's a difficult operation, you know, it's a it's one of those operations that that defines pediatric surgery. So then find out two days later that kid's needing to go back to theatre is difficult and it does weigh on your mind. At the same time, you need to be able to have a process by which you can move forward because I think about my practice where I spend, as I said, 90% of my time looking after Hirschsprung's disease, anorectal malformations and children that require surgery for chronic constipation. If I stopped or was unable to operate again on a patient with Hirschsprung's disease after a significant complication, then all of a sudden I'm going to be running out of patients to care for pretty soon because I've got a relatively narrow base of, of conditions that I, that I subspecialize in. But the most important thing is is um, to think, okay, well, what can we learn from, from the case? So, because you just don't want that to happen again the most important thing in this situation is to not run away from that and one of my senior surgeons many years ago said that essentially there are a couple of types of surgeons when it comes to this and there's the surgeon who has a complication and can't be seen for dust you don't want to be that surgeon you want to be the surgeon who if they have a complication you know is seeing that patient two or three more times than usual and that might be two or three times a day uh, when they're recovering from that complication
0: we also know that in terms of things that you believe in one thing is advocating for women in surgery and equality in surgery
1: i suppose that i i recognize that i have been in an incredibly privileged position my mother was actually um, did better in the leaving than my father and wanted to do medicine, um, but was told by her father, who was a GP surgeon, that she should go and do nursing because she'd be taking the position of a good man. So she didn't do medicine. And so uh, my mother has always been very strong advocate for women within medical practice. My wife is a, a physician and has worked very hard whilst juggling more than I have with our three children and not only juggling but um, it's like juggling chainsaws and bowling balls whilst doing a PhD whilst doing two fellowships so has has you know achieved remarkable things but I do think that So much of what we have within the surgical training is it is difficult for women because obviously by the time most women have got into surgical training, they are right in the middle of childbearing age group. And so I think that it's our responsibility as trainers, as people that work within an institution to support those women to be able to have the children when they want to have them to be able to then come back into training as appropriate. I think the vast majority of women are able to come back into training and pick up their skills incredibly quickly, so much more than I think that most males would be able to in many ways. And I remember coming back into medicine after three years of having done my PhD thinking it took me a good while to get back up to where I thought I should be. Yet women do that time and time and time again. So I think it's really important to recognise that they are put into more difficult situations than many people appreciate. And I think then when we come to the End of that training and the consultant positions. It needs to be um, borne in mind, and I know that's not a very potentially popular opinion uh, with some of my colleagues. You know, I had a disagreement with one of my colleagues a little while ago around you know, the concept of positive discrimination, etc. And as I pointed out to him, did he not think that he and I had been positively discriminated for our entire life by being white middle-class males, which we have been? And there's no doubt about that. It's a very slow. Process, it's slower than it should be, but I think the college is doing a, a reasonable job. But it's really a, a responsibility at a departmental and an institutional level. If you think about it, you come into the children's hospital, there's a huge number of female consultants, not necessarily surgical consultants, but female consultants. But even then, a large number of them are not in full time positions. Now, they might have chosen to be that to be the case, but they might not necessarily have chosen that. I also think even in the last you know, two or three days, there was an article in the paper. It was a for and against, um, and it was a, a and the the male doctor was addressed as doctor, and the female professor was 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 not given a title. That sort of stuff is just unforgivable.
0: I think it's an issue which has come more into the forefront of the public conscience in the past couple of years. I guess as like a young man myself, sometimes a lot of these issues, it can be quite difficult for me to empathize or fully understand them because I haven't experienced them. I'm wondering the similar people who might be in my kind of position, what can we do to address those issues?
1: Yeah, I think that your your generation is better at far better at this than, than even our my generation, which I think is better than the generation above me. That's positive that there is a there is a shift. But I think that if you look at the people within your cohort who are pushing forward either in a surgical society or uh, the med-soc, et cetera, those things used to be more male dominated. And I think that's less so today. But I think it's beholden to us to constantly call that out. So one of the roles I have at the moment is I'm the scientific convener for the um, annual scientific congress for the college. Every meeting that we have, which is every four weeks, constantly commenting about no manals, there's just no place for that. Um, and thinking about our international guests, uh, is it really the case that the, the the five people that you're going to invite are male? No, that you're trying to tell me that there is not a an excellent female surgeon out there who can fill one of those or two or three or four of those roles.
0: I don't want to say it's necessarily like affirming the stereotype, but. A lot of the the guests that we've spoken to so far, it seems like the, their career path has relatively been straightforward in, in a sense that they, well they're, they're men, and so that the, their sort of role within a family and stuff is is not the same. and I think there's just the challenges that they face are are different. So I think it's important that we I guess, start some of the discussion about that issue in this in this podcast, and I think it'll be something that'll be really interesting to explore.
1: Pediatric surgery is very different. If you think about the if you think about the gender split within the specialties, at the moment, about sixty-five to seventy percent of the ped surgical trainees are female. And so that is very different from other specialties, be it urology or orthopedics in particular. And there are lots of reasons behind that. but still there is a significant selection issue.
0: So at the moment, um, your clinical role at children's Hospital is that you're focused primarily on children born with anorectal malformations and Hirschsprungs and also chronic constipation. You also established the complex colorectal service at the children's hospital since uh, since sort of working here. A big theme of your career and a lot of the answers that you've given to some of these questions is this idea of collaboration and working with other people. What do you think in terms of your, your way of working with people makes you an effective collaborator? And how can we be more effective collaborators in, in what we do day to day? Yeah, I
1: think that um, I love collaborating. Um, uh, from a research point of view, I often describe myself as a promiscuous collaborator. I love being in the room with people that are far smarter than me. That's an easy thing for me to do most of the time. And to bounce ideas off other people, to have you know, the students that I've got at the moment who are coming up with their own ideas, and pushing me to think you know in novel ways, I think that that's absolutely fantastic. Lord Michaels, who started Saturday Night Live, has one of my favorite quotes where he says that if you 're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room, um, and that's the way I like to think about how I practice my clinic, you know, my, my medicine and uh, my surgery, and my teams. And so with the colorectal service, so we've, uh, which is now the colorectal and pelvic reconstruction service, um, that was initially funded through, uh, has had some seed funding through the uh, Royal Children's Hospital Foundation. And then we have, in the last year, had a, a large injection of funds through the federal government. And for me, that's a very exciting time because this is a collection of patients who have been traditionally not had a lot of attention. It's very difficult to make stomas and incontinence sexy. It's just not. And so it's hard to get families to, so to speak, out of the open about their children's and the and the struggles that they've had. So that's why a lot of the work that I've done over the last four or five years has really been looking at the quality of life for children and the families affected by it. And with that in mind, if I think about how I see our service that we've, you know, setting up that that has, we've brought in two colorectal nurses, we've brought in a psychologist, we've brought in a social worker, we're gonna have care coordination, we're gonna have stomal therapy, we've got data manager and research coordinator. All of those aspects are absolutely integral to providing high quality care for these children in a way that if your child had uh, cancer, the thought of them going on to the oncology ward and not having clinical nurse specialists looking after them or a particular pharmacists that are used to looking after oncology that that would be madness um, the same way if you go on to you know, if your child's got a cardiac condition here the you know the cardiac coordinators the echo specialists all of those things that that the cardiology team need to run well um, that's what we need for the colorectal team and so from a from a collaborative point of view I love it and so for example, when we brought our psychologist into the service, um, the psycho you know, I joke that the psychologist is for me to keep me sane through this whole process, but there's such an unmet need for these families because they have got senses of guilt, they've got sense of shame, they've got they've they've Many of them haven't told their even their extended family that their children have had an operation or have got a stoma bag, etc. And we have changed the way that we run some of our clinics based on the biopsychosocial model that I learned all about in 1999, uh, but have sort of you know put away and not used as much as I should have perhaps. But from a collaborative point of view, if you see, there are very very few if we're going to focus on surgeons and surgeon scientists, there are very few surgeon scientists that... that are are productive, who don't collaborate. The size of the data uh, bases that we work with, the the skill sets that we need, the the recognition that um, I have subspecialised into these conditions, but I'm never going to know stats as well as the statistician upstairs. Um, And so uh, silly to think that, um, that the quality of my work and our work can't be improved by bringing people with that expertise in so i think that you'll see it as 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 you start your intern and residency you'll you'll all work with seniors to you who are far more effective at collaboration than others and you might not necessarily be able to put a finger on it initially but there'll be there will be as soon as you get into a hospital there will be a feeling around certain people that that the teams just want to work with and almost always those people it's not because they're brilliant it's not because they know more of tally and o'connor than anybody else it's because that they are able to make the people around them feel valued and um, that the team therefore is working so much more effectively
0: um, and then i guess in terms of you know where you are today and, and future direction what's what are the what are your plans
1: so i think from a from a clinical and research point of view, very much we've got a five year time frame through our funding now, and my vision and and desire is to make the colorectal and pelvic recon service you know without a doubt the best of its kind in Australia, which I think we're well and truly on the way to doing that already um, but but recognized internationally as one of the one of the superior colorectal units, both from a clinical level, but from a research output and from a teaching and advocacy perspective, I think the really important part of the work that I do is, um, and why I think we've been successful with the funding that we have been, is that we've brought the families on board in a way that other centres perhaps haven't. And I think that you know, constantly becoming a better surgeon, and for me that is uh, um, having seen more, having done more, better technically. A uh, better teacher, um, uh, which would mean then for the trainees that their experience. Um, uh, I'd like to think that this is a centre and a and a, a department and a service where people are wanting to come because of what we're providing for them and their training. Um,
0: what what will we find you doing this weekend?
1: Oh, <laughs> this weekend, it's a bit difficult, isn't it? Considering we're all sort of. Stuck indoors, um, but uh, my eight-year-old is a very—I don't know where he's got it from—but he's a very skilled little basketballer, and so he would have normally been playing hours and hours of uh, basketball and club basketball, and so this weekend will be spent down at the basketball court with him doing drills and you know getting him just so that he doesn't uh, get behind in his eyes.
0: Uh, I guess the the final question really is, um, you know, so as you mentioned, you're someone who's Who's had a really strong vision about you know what what they want to do, and um, not all the listeners um, who are going to be listening to this podcast are, are maybe surgically inclined. Um, so maybe just just generally speaking, you know what what do you say to the medical students or the junior doctors who don't know what they want to do?
1: I think that's that's going to be the vast majority of people, and that's great. Um, one of the real advantages of medicine is that there are so many different avenues that you can take. And if I think about my good mates from uh, university, uh, they've gone into orthopaedics, they've gone into neurosurgery, they've gone into endocrinology. You know, my wife, as I said, has gone into immunology, she's, and she's gone not only into immunology but into PhD, into primary immunodeficiency and genetics. But we've also got colleagues and friends who've gone into being medical reps, who've gone into administration, some who've who've left medicine completely and gone into business and um, sort of management consultancy. So there's lots and lots of different options. And in the end, most people, I think, select something. It seems to me most people end up selecting something that they are inspired by a collection of people almost more than the actual pathologies associated with that condition. And, um, and that's certainly, as I said, been the case for me all the way back to Ian Kern in 1991, and, and uh, you know I said to you a little while ago that uh, he was a man who was still interested in learning and uh, he has just completed his PhD in his early 80s on subspecialization in surgery. Um, so that gives you an idea of what his mind is like. And um, so I think that for, for those who have, haven't got an idea of what they want to do within medicine, there are so many options um, and uh, you'll end up finding something that really um, hopefully inspires you and keeps you interested.
0: Uh, I guess on behalf of all the listeners, I'd like to thank you again, um, Prof King, for your time today. And yeah, um, hopefully that um, you know what we've talked about today provides a little bit of reassurance, um, but also maybe some inspiration as well for, for for future doctors like us. So thank you for your time.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks very much, Jason. Thank you to the team, and and make sure everybody stays as safe and sane in these COVID times.
0: Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode of the Time Out podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us in the future, please consider subscribing to the show on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. If you'd like to contact us or have any thoughts that you'd like to share, please do so via our Facebook page, The Surgical Students Society of Melbourne. The Surgical Students Society of Melbourne would like to thank our two major sponsors for 2020, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society, and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support. Please find in the show description a link for the Department of Surgery's e-learning module entitled Pathways to Career Progression, as well as two links from MIPS for students. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would also like to thank Michelle Andrews, who is the co-host of the Shameless podcast, for her support in helping us to put this program together. You can find the Shameless podcast on Apple and Spotify podcasts as well. This episode was produced by Karen Gunatalaki and Alex Grogan. Special thanks to Jenny Pham and Rashan Kari for their help in organising today's guests. My name's Jason, and I hope that you'll tune in again soon.